you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, we are continuing through our study of this letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. And working our way through the 12th chapter this morning. Uh, our, our focus this morning is on verses 3 through 8. We started this chapter last week and we are just continuing our way through this, this book. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, grab it. If not, grab a, a blue one on your pew or a, a phone or a device you brought with you, whatever it is. But open up God's Word so that you can see and, and read it for yourselves, but also see that the things that I say to you or that anyone says to you from this pulpit come directly from God's Word. And if it does not come directly from God's word, since you have it open before you, you know it and you can question it and you can hold us to account and and see for yourselves what God's word says. So look with me at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, I'm going to begin in verse one and read the verses we looked at last week and then into our verses for this morning. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, help us this morning. Help us not only to read and understand your word, but help us to live in light of your word, to live in submission to your word. For we do not stand over it, but it sits over us as our guide, as our help, as our conviction, as our our path, as our lamp. God, light up our path that we may see your truth this morning. Teach us to, to obey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was a husband who always struggled to find the right gift for his wife. Birthdays, Christmases, Mother's Day, it didn't matter. Every time it came, one way or another, his gifts, some way or another, always seemed to miss the mark. Until one year, he finally gets it. He finds the perfect gift for his wife. It is, it is something that she can use every day while also shining a light on her beauty. This gift will be a blessing to her and to her entire family as as she can use it to to serve her family, to love them well. There has never been a more perfect gift for this woman. And so the day comes to give it to her and with a, a big goofy grin on his face. He lays the present in front of his wife. She opens it up. She smiles, says thank you that she really likes it, can't wait to use it. 
It is the perfect response. It's everything that he wanted and hoped she would say when she saw it. A few weeks pass and the husband notices that it's still in the package. In fact, it doesn't look like it's even been touched since the day that she unwrapped it. So he asks about it. And she says, well, she just hasn't had the chance to do anything with it yet. She hasn't had time. She still loves the gift, but just is waiting for, for the right moment, the right season to use it. And the husband understands. Then a few more weeks pass. And she still loves it, but she isn't quite sure how to best use it. And so it gets to be six months. And she comments that she's been watching how other people use this gift. And, and she's not really sure how they use it. Because honestly, they just seem better at it than she does. And so she hasn't really wanted to try it out just yet. Eight months pass and then ten months pass. And finally, it becomes a full year since she unwrapped it and still hasn't used it. And so the day finally comes where the husband lovingly approaches his wife and says, I I got this for you because it fits you so perfectly. And I wanted to see you use this not only to, to serve and to love your family, but also to see you grow and flourish with this gift. But the fact that you haven't even opened it in a year says that you have no interest in doing any of this. And I don't know what to say or or to do to convince you that this gift is for your good and for your growth. Please open it up and use it. And so she does. And the day she opens it, she she puts it on, she puts it to work and, and she finds that her heart swells with beauty as she watches it in her hands. She, she looks at herself in the mirror holding it, and, and she can't believe how well it suits her. She uses it to serve her family. She finds that it, it brings her so much joy that she never knew was possible from one little gift. And now she wonders what took her so long to finally open up this sweet, thoughtful, and precious gift that, that her wonderful husband gave her. And more than any of this, she comes to realize just how wonderful, just how loving, how kind, how gracious of a husband she has. Now, this story may hit home in a a couple of different ways for you. But let me assure you, this is not a story from my life. I'm still waiting. My wife, I should say, is still waiting for me to find the perfect gift for her. But all the same, this is a true story. But the husband is not any of us men. The wife is not any of you ladies. The husband is Christ. And the wife is his church, his bride. And the gifts are the spiritual gifts that that he has given to you by his grace. You know, last week we began this chapter in Romans 12 and we began looking at how the gospel calls us to live new transformed lives as, as living sacrifices to God. And this morning and in the coming weeks, we're. We're going to be looking at the various ways that a life of living sacrifice looks for the Christian. And Paul begins this explanation section, this application section, by by focusing on the church as a whole, by, by discussing the church and how we are to use the gifts of grace that God has given us, both for our own individual good and flourishing, but also for the good and flourishing of the church as a whole. And so within these verses that that I've just read, Paul gives us three things, three headings for us to sort of guide and frame our our time of study this morning. He gives us a warning first, and then a truth, and then a command. And we're going to walk through each of these together. So first, the warning. The warning. You'll notice right from the start in verse 3 that Paul begins and he he frames what he's about to say in in terms of his own authority. 
He begins and he says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to you. Now, the last time in this book that Paul has made reference specifically to the grace given to him was in all the way back in Romans one, where he refers to himself and, and refers to his his calling by God as an apostle. And he mentioned that it was by God's grace to Paul that he became an apostle. This position of authority over the church as one called by God and one who visibly saw the resurrected Christ. And he begins this section by highlighting what he's about to say or that by highlighting that what he's about to say is said to the church from an apostle, from one called by grace and therefore from one who sits in a seat of authority over this church. And so therefore the church, both the Roman church that he writes these words to and us, we need to make sure we listen carefully. Because this is an apostle of Christ who is speaking these words. He is leading us. He is calling us. He's commanding us to hear these words. And he speaks with authority on these matters. But before he gives us the command of this passage, he gives us a warning. He says, for the by by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. This is a warning against pride. And looking at the rest of the passage, we we come to understand that Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts here. And as Christians, that we who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, you have been equipped and, and given by the grace of God various gifts that fit you well. These gifts take all sorts of shapes and sizes, but primarily we can best discern what our gifts are by looking at our desires and our skill set and the things that we love doing the most. We'll get into some more of the specifics of these gifts in a few minutes, but for now, I think we need to understand and begin with the understanding that that each of us as believers have in our possession spiritual gifts of grace from God. The question is not, do I have gifts, but what are my gifts? And I think this warning against pride is certainly applicable in various arenas of our life. Here in these verses, it is pointed towards how we view ourselves in regard to these spiritual gifts that we possess. I remember as a young child, my family had the same routine for for Christmas every year. We would wake up early, spend the early morning at home, open presents and have breakfast and go through the whole uh, excitement of Christmas morning. And by lunchtime, we'd we'd go to my grandparents' house. And there at their house, we would have my aunts and uncles and all of our cousins. We'd all get together for and open up presents together and have Christmas lunch together. It was it was great. I still look back fondly on these on those years. But what's funny is, is I remember how how the conversation looked almost identical every single year between my brother and myself and our cousins. Because we'd get there to, to our grandparents' house and we'd exchange the usual greetings, Merry Christmas, hugs, how are you, all, all of that. But it wouldn't take long before the conversation of the children inevitably became, what did you get? What, what presents did you open? And the, the, the question, that question was never asked out of a gener, genuine concern or a genuine love for other people to share in your excitement. But it was always asked of, are my presence better than your presence? Did you get something better than I got? 
Oh, you got a Game Boy. Well, I got a Game Boy Color. Oh, you got a remote control car. I only got a Matchbox car. Oh, you got blue jeans? I got blue jeans too, but my jeans are way bluer than yours, I promise you. I mean, it's just, it's funny to think how we were as kids and how we viewed ourselves and the gifts that we had been given, but only in terms of how those gifts lined up and compared to the gifts that other people had been given. And it's not really much different as adults, is it? We may not compare Game Boys and toy cars, but we still compare houses and families and jobs and salaries and lifestyles and all the other stuff that doesn't really matter in the end. And what Paul is warning us here against is that we need to be careful not to be arrogant over the spiritual gifts that God has given to us by his grace. I mean, let's face it, there are some spiritual gifts that we prize over others. There are some gifts that we deem to be more important, more useful, more impactful to the church and to the ministry than others. For example... We might prize the gift of teaching and leadership over other gifts because the people with those gifts often receive most of the attention and are used more publicly in the ministry of the church than others. But is the gift of teaching more important than the gift of service? Or is the gift of leadership more necessary than the gift of hospitality or acts of mercy or encouragement? No, of course not. And so Christian... If you have gifts that receive more of the spotlight than others, be careful not to think of yourselves, uh, not to think that, that you are more needed and more essential to this church than someone without those gifts. But we could flip the coin to the other side here, too, and we could say if your gifts are less in the spotlight, they're more backstage gifts, if you will. Don't despair or convince yourself that you are not needed. Yes, I think Paul is warning about thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But there is an equal danger of thinking too lowly of ourselves. Of thinking that our gifts, that our, our purpose, that our function, that our role in the church doesn't really matter. And both of these paths, whether thinking too highly of ourselves because of our gifts or thinking too lowly of ourselves because of our gifts, both of these paths do damage to the church. Because God gives all of his people these gifts and all of these gifts are needed. God does not waste gifts. He does not give them haphazardly or just sporadically. He gives them intentionally, purposefully, sovereignly and graciously. And so we must think of ourselves rightly with sober judgment, Paul says. This means that we must always keep in mind where these gifts come from. He says to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this phrase measure of faith has has been the subject of of considerable debate over what it means. But we can we can sort of cut through the fog this morning and get straight to the heart of it. What Paul is saying that in in God's infinitely sovereign grace, God has given each individual Christian the gifts that he has chosen to give. And this giving comes according to the measure of faith. That is the, the quantity of faith that God has given each person. It's the, the parable of the talents that Jessica mentioned with the children. It's the, the parable that Jesus tells his disciples. Where God has chosen to give some people one talent. And others two talents. 
and still others five talents. But whether you have five talents or one talent, the the issue is that what you use, that, that you use what God has given you and not wish that you had been given more or been given less. Because the gifts that you have, you have them because God has been gracious to give them. And we must not despise his grace by being either too arrogant or too desperate to appreciate them. And so, church, we need to hear the warning first. Do not think too highly of yourselves, Christian. What you have, you have because God is gracious. Not because you are better. And so with the warning in hand, we can turn with Paul to the truth that he states about the church. And the truth found in verses 4 and 5 is is one that we may be familiar with. It's that there is one body with many members. The church is one body with many members. Many of us are are familiar with Paul's analogy of the the church being the body of Christ. It's a term that we use so often when we hear it, it just sort of maybe passes over us. And we don't really give much thought to what Paul is saying. But I think that this term, body of Christ, I I think this image that, that Paul is using is important. And it helps us better frame and grasp what is the church that we belong to. Because this analogy of the church being a, being like a, a physical body, like the physical body of Christ, it is meant to highlight two important components of what it means to be the church. You see, first, this, this imagery highlights the, the unity of the church. We are, we are not a group of individuals all walking the same road. We are one united body walking the road together as one. That's what Paul says in verse five. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And you see, this body imagery really works well here. I mean, the the heart, if you think of our, our human body, what happens to your heart if you remove it from the body and hold it out here? It stops pumping. What happens to the lungs if you remove the muscles and and, and the nerves that help the lungs inflate and deflate? They don't work. The the stomach cannot turn food into energy without the mouth chewing and swallowing. The arms cannot move without the energy from the stomach and the muscles being connected to make the bones move. And so it is with the church. I mean, here we sit as a bunch of individuals. Different pockets of family members, different individuals scattered throughout the sanctuary. But the reality is, is that we make up the one body of Christ. We are unified in him for it is by him we are saved and it is in him we are brought together. And so this imagery highlights the unity of the church. But secondly, it also highlights the diversity of it. While the body is one unified being, it consists of individual parts, individual organs, all with different looks and makeup and function. Our physical bodies, it's one body. But when you zoom into the human body, you find hundreds of different pieces all fitting together, doing their parts, serving, working together in their own ways, and their own purposes. And this diversity of organs and and parts is good for our physical bodies. And it's good for the church. If all of our organs looked and worked like the heart, the body wouldn't work. If it's the same for the stomach and the eye and the ear, this is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. He says, if the whole body were an eye, 
where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But the diversity of the body serves the unity of the body. And so it is with the church. A healthy church is a diverse church. Diverse in gifts, diverse in personalities, diverse in age, diverse in career, diverse in all of it. But unified in that diversity. And so this truth that we need to understand following this warning is that the body of Christ is both unified and diverse. And that's a good thing. So warning heard, truth understood. Now we are ready for the command. Look with me at at verse six. He says, having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's the command. Use them. And you'll notice that it's assumed right from the beginning. Again, to just point this out again, it is assumed that everyone has the gifts. Paul doesn't say if you are those with gifts, then use them. And if you are in pursuit of those gifts, then use them. He says, knowing this, the fact is is that we already have gifts that defer according to the grace given to us. Therefore, let us use them. And then he proceeds in verse seven and eight with this list of gifts. And he gives us seven of them, seven spiritual gifts. And before we get into the, the specifics of these gifts, let me uh, make sure we start off on the same page and understanding here. This list that Paul gives of seven is not exhaustive. He does not list every single spiritual gift that is out there. Other gifts he mentions in other letters, for example, the Corinthian letters, he mentions many other gifts that are not mentioned here. And so we cannot look at this list and say, these are all the spiritual gifts that exist in the church. But with that, we have to also keep in mind that Paul has never been to Rome. When he writes these words, he has never stepped foot in in one of these house churches and worshiped with them. He He does not know personally many of the members of this Roman church. He has not witnessed how they work together and how the body in Rome functions. And so largely, Paul doesn't know what spiritual gifts exist in the church. And so what he does is he gives us not an exhaustive list, but a representative list. He gives us seven gifts that are widespread throughout the church and are assumed to exist in every single church. And so church, these seven gifts exist here at Bear Creek in some way, shape or form. They are real. They're widespread. It is a part of the church. And so I, I want to move through this list quickly, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on on these gifts. And, and here's why. I'm sure that as we go through these gifts, you'll have questions that pop up. Well, what does this mean? And how does this work? And do I have this? We're not, I'm not, I don't want to do that this morning. Because I don't believe that's the purpose of the passage. The purpose of this passage is not find out your spiritual gifts. But the driving force of this passage is whatever your spiritual gifts are, use them. And so we're going to walk through this list and and then I want us to end with, with thinking through how this passage challenges us. This, this list of seven is actually broken down into three groups and, and based on the, the way that Paul writes. And the first group really is only the, it's the first gift. Prophecy. Prophecy, if there's any gift in this list that makes me a little bit more uncomfortable, it's this one. Because when we think of prophecy, what do we think of? We think of fortune tellers and people who look into the future and predict what's going to happen. 
We think of prophets speaking off the cuff, saying a whole bunch of things that we just don't understand. And so it makes me nervous when I read this and, and coming to this list with the understanding that this gift exists in every church. What does that mean? And I think when we look at the gift of prophecy and what it is at its nature, prophecy is revelation. It is revealing some truth that God has given to individuals. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament did. They stood before Israel and said, thus says the Lord. This is what God has told me to tell you. And I think in a lot of ways, we still have a a similar ministry within our church. Prophecy, more than anything else, if we simplify it, is simply bringing a word from God into a specific situation. That can look like wisdom. That can look like advice. That can look like challenging and conviction and exhortation. It can look like a whole host of things. But the the, the focus of prophecy is, this is what God wants you to do. This is what God wants you to hear. This is what God wants you to believe. And it is someone who comes in a specific situation and shares this word from the Lord to an individual, to a situation, and speaks God's truth in that moment. Is prophecy, does prophecy mean telling the future? Sometimes. Not always. We have evidence in, in the book of Acts, for example, in Acts 21, where Paul is getting ready. He's traveling back to Jerusalem and he meets a man named Agabus in Ephesus. And Agabus binds up Paul's feet and his hands with his belt. And he says, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what you can expect to happen. And sure enough, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's tied up in chains. But prophecy doesn't always mean future speaking. What it does mean is being led by this Holy Spirit to speak, but with a supernatural understanding of the situation and how to speak truth into that situation. But as he does with each of these gifts, Paul qualifies it and and says, here's the gift and here's how we must use it. And that's the, the pattern that he gives here. And so with with prophecy, he says, if you have the gift of prophecy, here's how you must use it in proportion to our faith. And I think there's two ways for us to understand this, this phrase in proportion to our faith. First, whatever the prophecy is, it must line up and agree with the standard of biblical Christian doctrine and teaching. There's nothing prophetic about teaching something that goes against God's word. That's not prophecy. That's a lie. No one has a word from God that then goes against biblical teaching. God doesn't tell anyone that Jesus is never going to return. And God doesn't tell anyone that Jesus never rose from the dead. Those things don't happen. And so in one sense, we understand this to say, if you prophesy and if you speak truth from God, make sure that truth lines up with what's in this book. The second way we understand this is that it must not exceed the limit of the individual's personal faith. So what that means is that if God has given you the gift of prophecy and you're able to speak truth into situations, you must not overstep and speaking about things that you have no business speaking about and speaking about things that God has not told you to speak about. This is Paul's way of saying that if you have the gift of prophecy and you are able to speak the truth of God into specific situations, be careful. Be careful not to do it to gain attention. Be careful not to do it to impress. Be careful that you do not speak about things that you do not know or pretend that you know something that God has not spoken to you. 
And what he's saying here is, if you have the gift of prophecy, then let the faith that God has given you and the insight that God has provided to you, let that be enough. Do not go beyond it. So that's the first group. Group two, three, three gifts in this group. It's in verse seven. Service, teaching and exhortation. Beginning of eight service. This is anything from financial stewardship and managing resources of the church to uh, working behind the scenes and setting up tables and setting up chairs for events and and working in the kitchen to prepare meals. It's offering help to those who need it. It is simply just serving the church. Interesting enough, the, the word in Greek for service is diakonos, from which we get the word of the title deacon. And so while I, I don't believe that deacons are the only ones in the church with the gift of service, if you are a deacon, let me just go ahead and clarify for you. You have the gift of service because you've been called to serve. And so deacons serve. This is a this is a gift that God has given you. Serve the church. If you're not a deacon, don't think that this gift doesn't apply to you. Because you still may possess the gift of serving and you must be called and are called to are encouraged to serve the church. The next gift in this is teaching. Teaching is is different from prophecy. Prophecy reveals something new, something previously unknown. Teaching explains what is already known. Teaching takes what is given to us in God's word and explains it. It teaches it to us. And in fact, the one distinction that the Bible makes between the offices of elder and deacon is this ability to teach. And so elders, since I've already hit the deacon side of the coin, let's hit the elder side of the coin too. elders. You have the ability to teach, which means you have the spiritual gift of teaching. So teach. Do it. Use it. But let me also just say, church, that you do not have to be an elder to teach. The gift of teaching is not confined to this office. And so if you possess the gift of teaching, if you enjoy teaching, if your heart's desire is to teach others about God's word, then put it to work and do it. The last one in this group is exhortation. Exhortation takes biblical teaching and then applies it to living. Exhortation is encouraging other people, brothers and sisters, to live in the standard of the gospel, to pursue holiness. These are the brothers and sisters who come to you when you're struggling in sin and your feet are are ankle deep in the mud of sin. And they're the people who come to you and say, what are you doing? Get it together. Stop believing lies. Stop falling into sin. Trust in Christ. Believe and obey. That's exhortation. Group three, which ends the the, the verse. Group three, giving, leading, and caring. Giving is is simply just what it sounds like. Contributing is what the ESV says. Using your personal resources to help those who do not have them. And this may seem like an easy cop-out for many of us because we can say, oh, I give every week. That's great. I'm already obeying. But this is different and distinct from tithing. This is above and beyond tithing. All believers are called and and encouraged to to give and and tithe towards the the ministry of the church. But this gift of of giving, of contributing, goes beyond. It is someone who who does not know how to write a number on a checkbook, but just hands it out and says, use it. 
It is someone who opens their homes and uses the things that God has given for the good of other people and for the good of the church. And so he says, if you have the gift of contributing, of giving, then make sure you do it generously. Not begrudgingly, not withholding, but generously. Then we have the gift of leading. Leading is providing vision. It is someone who sits in oversight of different events and different programs and different ministries of the church. Someone who directs and delegates and appoints and and is able to, to put the pieces all together. Paul says, if you have that gift, make sure you use it with zeal. Make sure you use it with passion, with diligence. Because the reality is, is that the people who lead the church often have no oversight over themselves. And so laziness is an easy, easy out. And so Paul says, if you have the gift of leading, be passionate about it. Don't be lazy about it. And lastly, he says this acts of mercy, caring. This is mercy ministry. This is caring and loving for the elderly, for the sick, for the suffering, for the disabled. And Paul says, if if this is you and if you have been given the gift of, of doing these acts of mercy, make sure you do it with cheerfulness. Because the temptation to do it begrudgingly is big. Now, in all these gifts, we, we, we understand that, that God has given every believer different gifts to be used in the context of the church. But you cannot do this. And this is where we need to understand this. Christian, you cannot use the gifts God has given you if you are not a part of the church. Many of you may remember the the television show, The Addams Family. And one of the members of The Addams Family was Thing. The the disembodied hand that just sort of crawled around and walked around the house everywhere he goes. That doesn't work in the church. We don't need a bunch of things running around trying to use their gifts in all the different ways they can. We need hands that are connected to the body, not disembodied. And so with that in mind, I I believe that this passage sort of hits us as a church in in various ways. And depending on who you are and, and what your relationship is to Bear Creek and to the church. And so I want to take a, a few minutes here and, and sort of hit three different groups that I believe are here today. And how this speaks to you individually. So first, let me say to our visitors. This may be your first week here. This may be your fourth week here. Whatever it is, you're still visiting. Let me say first, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're visiting with us. Here at Bear Creek, one of the things that you need to know about us is we place a high priority on church membership because the Bible places a high priority on church membership. And if you're a believer who's who's trying to to find a church to call home, I I hope that you prayerfully consider being a member and what, what being a member here at Bear Creek could look like for you and your family. And if this is your landing spot, then. Then we will work as, as your pastor, as the elders and deacons of the church and the, as a church as a whole, we will work to encourage you in your gifts and to find ways and places within the church for you to use the gifts that God has given you for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Church members. The calling of this passage is for you to use your gifts faithfully and diligently to strengthen the body's unity and to help it flourish. Use them. 
Don't be arrogant over the gifts that you have. And, but, but remember that the gifts come to you by grace. And don't despair over the gifts that you do not have, but others do. One body, many members. And all members are needed and necessary for the good of the body. Before I move on to the third group, let me say this one last thing to members. Church members, many of you have been here for your entire lives, for decades and decades and decades. And you have spent so many of those years serving and using those spiritual gifts. And I'm thankful for that. But don't think that just because you already did it, that you're done doing it. God didn't give you your gift to only be used for a season. The gift is given for you to use until you draw your last breath. Do we need periods of rest? Do we need periods where we take time away from serving and time away from from active involvement in various programs and ministries? Sure. But if God has gifted you in certain and specific ways, which I know that he has. You have no right to tell him, I've already used that. I don't want to do it anymore. I've already put that gift to work once. I'm done. To go back to our our physical body analogy that Paul has used, every member, every body part has a role, has a purpose, has a function. And this includes every church member. Every member should be missed when they are absent. Much like your physical body would feel the absence if one of your lungs went missing during a hike up of the mountain. But I fear that we have members in our church who seem to think of themselves less like a lung and more of an appendix. No one really knows what you do and you're not really missed if you're not here. Church member, you're not an appendix to the body of Christ. We need you. And we need the gifts that God has given you to be used. Use them. Last group that I want to speak to this morning from from this passage. We've hit our visitors. We've hit our, our church members. The last group is to our regular attenders. And, and we call you that because really we don't have a better way to say it. You're here more weeks than you're not. But you're not a member. And I I don't want to hear I don't want you to hear me and, and, and. I'm thankful for you as our regular tenders. I am thankful to get to know you, thankful to 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 have you here with us. And I know that some of you are, are considering joining the church and are thinking it through with your families. I, I think that's great. Don't rush that. Take your time. But there are others of you who are content to just remain non-members and be just attenders. Or, or maybe a better name for it is not regular attenders, but consumers. And I've gone back and forth on this part all week, and I, I want to be gentle and I want to be pastoral and I want to be loving to all of you. My goal as the pastor is to encourage you and not to berate you or condemn you. And so do not hear condemnation. But here, challenge. Because the reality is that if you are simply attending the church without joining the church, you are not living in obedience to Scripture. The gifts that God has given you are meant to be used within the church as an active and living part of the body. And and consumers, attenders, are not part of the body. 
You're close to the body and close enough that it may even feel that you're a part of the body. But in reality, you exist outside and apart from the body of Christ. You feed off the body and yet provide nothing to the body. You're a leech. And I know that may be hard to hear. And trust me, it's hard to say. But I feel that it needs to be said. Stop being a leech. Stop sucking life from the church for your own good and giving nothing in return. Use the gifts that God has given you for the church's growth, for the church's benefit, and for the glory of God. We hear the warning. Do not be prideful, but always remember where your gifts come from. From God, by his grace. And he has given you these gifts by his sovereign grace and not because or by any other reason. It is only because he is gracious that you have them. We need to believe the truth. The gifts that you have are different from the gifts of your neighbor. But this does not mean that one gift is better than the other. Within this diversity of gifts, the body of Christ is unified and flourishes. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And knowing this, then we must use what God has given. Whatever gifts you have, whatever gifts God has given, use them. Don't sit back and let other people do the work of ministry. As Christians, you are called to this work just as much as I am and just as much as every other believer in this room. So get to it. Put these gifts of grace to work, for that is why they were given in the first place. And my prayer is that that as we, the church, as we put these gifts, as we exercise these gifts, as we use these gifts of grace, then the church will flourish The ministry will grow and our king will be glorified. That is our aim. The glory of the king. Nothing else will do. Pray with me. Father, help us. Help us to hear your word. It is hard to hear. It is hard to say. But it is for our good. Teach us these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray.